and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. It's Christmas time. I want to take you on a journey real quick. Turn on that flat screen in your head, and it's Christmas time in New York City, 1905, and William Sidney Porter is a struggling author. In fact, he's just struggling with life. Um, he's lost his wife um, to a lung thing, um, and he's trying to mend. He's struggling just to mend a relationship with his daughter right now. Um, he's struggling with alcoholism, um, and he's struggling just to make ends meet. And then to make matters even worse, um, William is struggling with his, uh, well, his reason to go on, because here's the deal. William just lost his job. Um, it's the day before Christmas. He's lost his job. And uh, <laughs> the thing is, is, this was a really good job for a writer. It was 100 bucks a week, all right, uh, to write short stories for the New York Post. And um, as if it wasn't a gut punch enough to get fired right before Christmas, the newspaper, they send a guy to him the day before uh, Christmas, so Christmas Eve, and they say, hey, listen, your contract's actually through the end of the year. We need you to write one more story for us. Wait, you already fired me. You need me to write one more story for you? Okay. So he writes at a feverish pace through Christmas Eve, um, through through Christmas Eve night, and uh, he ends up writing one of the most famous short stories of all time. It's called The Gift of the Magi. I want to tell you that story right now. In William's story, we only get two simple characters, Jim and Della Young. They barely got two bucks to their name, um, but at least they have each other. And their love for each other is true and pure, and they only have one wish this Christmas. They want to give each other the most meaningful gift they possibly can. So Della considers what to give Jim, and she knows um, that Jim has a really nice pocket watch. It's his most prized possession, and in all actuality, Jim's pocket watch is his only real possession of value. So she considers the one thing she has a value that she might sell in order to buy Jim a proper chain for his uh, pocket watch. She knows what she's got to do. She knows she's got to cut her hair, her long, beautiful brown hair, hair that the uh, text says cascades past her knees like a waterfall. So she cuts her hair, sells it for $20, and she buys Jim a proper platinum chain to go with his pocket watch. But here's the twist. If you guys know the story, you know the twist. When she goes to give Jim his gift, she sees tears in his eyes because you see Jim has just sold his pocket watch to buy her a set of combs for her very long brown hair, hair that she no longer has. So the two lovebirds, they share a Christmas embrace, and that's how the story ends. It's ironically beautiful, Right? William Sidney Porter, the guy who wrote this story, he'd die a few years later from alcoholism, but his tale is timeless, and it's just so interesting to me that someone who was so down on their luck, so depressed, so hurting, that he could pen something so beautiful. And on all nights, it happened on a lonesome Christmas Eve. It was like William was destined to write this story. Like the beauty of this story was the only thing that could lift him up out of his deep-seated depression on Christmas Day. And guys, I'm telling you, if we let it, this story in our text, it'll move us today. This story touches on the unparalleled beauty of uncalculated generosity. This story will strike us with wonder and awe as we ponder a selfless act of sacrifice. This story will lead us right to the beating heart of love itself. Um, in fact, we at Bentry, Hunter already mentioned it, we have a word for this kind of love. We call it extravagant. 
Extravagant is the name of my uh, text. Well, it's the title for my sermon today. Um, it's a funny word, right? Extravagant. Everyone, would you actually say that word on the count of three? Ready? One, two, three. Extravagant. Some of you guys actually said it kind of extravagantly. Good job. Good on you. Um, here at Ventry, we have four values. There are distinctives. All right. They're the why behind everything we do here at Ventry. They are biblical truth, extravagant worship, generational faith, and relational discipleship. And if there's any one of these that needs, um, well, a little bit of clarification, a little bit of um, defying definition, it's extravagant worship. Um, first things first, I want to say that extravagant worship is not flamboyant worship, okay? So you guys can leave your feather boas at home, okay? That's not what we're going here for our worship here. Um, extravagant, when we call it extravagant, I want you guys to think everything, Extravagant means everything, all right? Because God is everything to us. So we give him everything in worshipful response. He is great and greatly to be praised. Amen? Amen. So we don't do worship small here at Bentry Church. We try to do worship with as much passion and excellence as we possibly can. And we don't do it to be theatrical. We don't do it to be emotionally manipulative or ostentatious or showy. We just don't hold back when we give God our praise. And so coming to our text for the day now, thank you, Ed, um, for reading that for us. The most significant Bible story we have that informs our value of extravagant worship is right there in Matthew 26. So I know Ed's prayed. I feel like I got to pray as well. Um, God, you are great. And you're greatly to be praised. You've been so generous with us. So I pray now that you would Help us to have generous hearts in return, hearts that are filled with gratitude, hearts that are filled with purpose, hearts that are moved by you. So move us today, God, by the power of your word, and let us not be cold-hearted or stubborn or stoic or critical. God, help us to be transformed by your grace. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, before we get into our verse-by-verse teaching through this passage, I want to look at our context. Like Wade said yes, or last week, context is king, amen? So, uh, the last time I was up here preaching, we finished looking at Jesus's eschatological discourse. That's in Matthew 25. I finished that, so that's why we're on to Matthew 26. Um, that talk, eschatological, means uh, eschatos from Greek, means the end. It's his talk, teaching on the end of the world. Um, and so now we've come to a really important transition in Matthew's gospel. You see, Matthew's gospel is marked by five great sermons of Christ, and they are as followed. Um, there they are. Um, you have your Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. You have Jesus' missionary discourse in Matthew 10. Matthew 13 is where Jesus' parables are. So if you're ever looking for a parable, try Matthew 13. All right? Um, his parables are on the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, that was one of my very first sermons here at Bentry Church, was about uh, is, is Jesus' teaching on the church and how we ought to live in community with another. And then what I just finished up was Matthew 24 and 25, which was the end of the age. So five sermons um, in Matthew's gospel. Um, Wade, you know, mentioned seven parts, and that's right, because there is an introduction here, and then there's a conclusion to Matthew's gospel. You have um, your first four chapters of Matthew, which are an introduction, plus the conclusion, so that together gets your seven parts of Matthew. You've got the sevenfold structure of Matthew here. So if you think I'm making this up, though, um, Matthew himself tells us when we're coming to um, the end uh, of a passage and coming to a transitional point. You see it um, in verse 1 of 26. This is his transition. Whenever he's, whatever, finishing up a sermon, he gives us this saying, when Jesus had finished saying all these things. That's how you know that Matthew's moving on from one of Jesus' sermons. And so, verse 1 of chapter 26, we're moving on from Jesus' talk on the Mount of Olives, um, which you have to remember, that was all about how the world dies. And now we're going to watch the Son of God die in the last two chapters of Matthew. 
Um, we're going to see the passion narrative where Jesus Christ is crucified, buried, and spoiler alert, he comes back to life. Okay, I don't know if you knew that. Amen. But um, before we start this journey, um, I need to let you know that Matthew 26 starts with something really special. It starts with, well, like any good journey should start with a sandwich. So um, let me explain what I mean. Here's the deal. If you're looking at the first few verses of Matthew 26, there's a sandwich to it. Um, we have, in fact, you know what? I'm going to do it this way. Would you guys take your hands out like this? Give me your hands like this. Okay, there's three parts to the sandwich. We have bread, bread, and then right in the middle is the meat of the sandwich. The very first part, the first piece of bread, is the plot to kill Jesus, all right? This is where we have religious leaders, men, plotting and conspiring, conniving behind the scenes, to get rid of this Jesus nuisance they've been dealing with. The other piece of bread, it matches that first piece of bread. This is where we see Judas going behind the scenes to betray the Son of God. But as you know, the most important part of the sandwich is right there. Oh, good job. You guys got the cue. (laughs) It's right there in the middle. And that's our text for today, Matthew 6 through 13, okay? So, again, you've got religious leaders gathering behind closed doors, having all kinds of discussions about how to get rid of the Jesus nuisance, the meat of the passage, which is what Ed read today. And then you've got Judas, who, uh, like the religious leaders, he's planning to betray Christ. That's the sandwich. Matthew is making this sandwich on purpose, not just because he's hungry. Matthew places this story of a woman anointing Jesus right in between these two people plotting to kill Jesus for a reason. He's wanting to contrast this woman's unrestrained worship with the religious leaders that are plotting, conspiring, Judas, who's working behind the scenes to kill Jesus. I'm going to describe this contrast a little bit more later on, but you need to know this about our context. We're coming to the point in the Gospels where Jesus is calling his own shots. He's marching on, unfazed, towards his own death, like a lamb to slaughter. And some people, they're looking to make a buck off of Christ. That's what Judas was looking to do. Some people are just looking to get rid of the Jesus nuisance, all right, and move on with their life. But this one woman, she truly recognizes Christ for who he truly is. And what's amazing about this is that Jesus is going to recognize her in front of all the disciples and everyone gathered there. He's going to recognize her for how she worships him and her extravagant act that will echo Through eternity. Let's dive into our text now, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, Matthew sets the scene in Bethany, which was just a couple miles away from the Jerusalem city center. Um, Not even a suburb, it was two miles away, right? It's likely, though, that this was Jesus' home base for the entire week of Passover, the week before he's crucified. Um, Simon's house in Bethany. Um, It wasn't all that far away from the Mount of Olives where Jesus preached. There's actually, this is really cool, there's archaeological evidence, all right, um, from the Dead Sea Scrolls that there was a leper colony. You know, Simon the leper. There was a leper colony right there near Bethany, so that adds some historical credibility to this account. Um, But what you need to know about lepers and leprosy, not leopards, lepers, and leprosy at this moment in history is that leprosy was a disease. It was a plague in ancient times. It was highly contagious, rotted away your skin and your nervous system, and it was lethal and tragic and incurable, and lepers weren't even allowed in the city. So why then, if it's so contagious, is Jesus at Simon's house? Well, honestly, it's likely that this was someone Jesus healed, at one of his points in his prior whatever missionary journeys through Jerusalem. And that's cool, but something else that's really cool is that we know from John's gospel that the woman who anoints him is Mary, all right? Mary, whose brother Lazarus was raised from the dead. Um, And because Mary is serving at this house, we can assume that she might be related to Simon. She might even be like his daughter, or I don't know, he might be her brother-in-law or something. But here's where it gets really cool, all right, as I'm giving you the context and the setting for this. 
If you look at John's account of this event in John 12, you'll see that this anointing actually takes place about six days before the Passover, right after Jesus had resurrected Lazarus. Guys, that means this is more than just dinner, all right? This is a celebration of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And it's just kind of interesting. A week before, they're celebrating a resurrection before Jesus' resurrection, right? Um, But here's the deal. You need to understand the personal connection this woman has with Jesus. She just got her brother back from the dead. And I don't know about you, but getting my brother back from the dead would motivate me to do something extravagant from Christ. So, verse 7, we see her extravagance. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, perfume, or oil, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Um, there's a lot to unpack in this verse, but the first thing I want you guys to focus on is the deed itself. Notice that Matthew doesn't tell you that this woman's name is Mary. He wants you to focus on what she did. And what did she do? She poured out a lot of perfume on Jesus. Um, we do this thing. We have a sermon review. And so I had Hunter spray some Febreze at this moment in the sermon. Um, but I didn't want to make you guys like sneeze or allergetic. So I was going to like bring in a whole bunch of perfume and Febreze. And I just decided not to. So envision it right now. All right. The whole place, it don't smell too hard. All right. <laughs> you don't know what the person next to you smells like. Here's the deal. The whole room is filled with the fragrance, all right, of this expensive ointment, this expensive perfume, all right? Because houses weren't that big back then. And I'm sure in that small, unventilated space, the smell was overwhelming. Let me give you some details about the alabaster flask. Alabaster is actually a stone um, that's quarried in Egypt. Um, It was probably worth a lot of money, like a month's wages or so. It'd be worth like $4,000 nowadays. This is an expensive flask. Um, like I said, it was a stone quarried in Egypt, cut with incredible posi- uh, precision because they thought that this was the very best type of container for storing aromatic oils. And though Matthew simply says this oil, this ointment was very expensive, we get more details from Mark's account in Mark 14. Mark 14, we read that the perfume in this flask was filled with precious spikenard, all right, which was manufactured from a special type of flower in India. And then it was imported all the way across Iran and Iraq and Kuwait and up around the Fertile Crescent to Israel there, all right? It was worth a year's wages, so it was probably enough perfume to be an investment. This is a business investment, like 12 to 16 ounces, two cups, your morning cup of coffee plus some. It's a lot of aromatic oil. It's no wonder that John's gospel talks about it running down Jesus through his beard to his feet and then Mary wiping Jesus' feet clean. Are you guys starting to see the picture in your eyes of just how much oil and what this really was like in that moment? Guys, it's more than just a bottle of perfume, though. All right? Um, This is probably a business investment, like I said, or maybe it's a family heirloom. Some scholars even think it might have been Mary's dowry that she was saving for her future husband. It's $50,000. That's the medium salary here in Larimer County. $50,000 worth of aromatic oil poured out in an instant. And I don't know how much money you guys make in a year, but just imagine that. Your entire year's salary poured out in just a matter of seconds, running down from Jesus' head all the way to his feet. If you're astounded at the picture I'm painting, you're in good company because the disciples, they're astounded as well. well. They're befuddled. They're flummoxed. All right? When the disciples saw this... (laughs) Here's another word for you. They were indignant. It means mad. 
All right? Saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. The disciples are there. They're sitting at the table with Jesus, watching it all unfold. They're celebrating Lazarus' resurrection too, but they're not ignorant, right? They know how much money was just poured out in this momentary transaction. And if you go back one chapter to Matthew 25, you remember my last sermon was talking about how we have to care for the least of these. So they're thinking, wait, was this really the best way to show your affection, Mary? Right? Like there's a lot of poor and starving kids in Africa. This seems wasteful. And I'm, I feel like I'm being kind to my or the disciples in my representation there because here's the deal. This text says they were indignant. They were mad. They're furious, all right? Maybe they'd been traveling with Jesus for a long time and maybe they too had felt kind of poor at times. Maybe they were feeling kind of frustrated that they had endured so much. And so when they see all this money poured out, they're thinking, poor me. Poor me. This is where I need to pause for a second. And you need to realize something. Here's your first note for the day. I absolutely love this slide. This is tacky. I love giving you guys these notes. Um, I can't think of a better word to describe the disciples in this moment, right? Seriously, imagine this for a second. Um, John, imagine I go up to your wife, Chrissy, and I look at her wedding ring and I go, wow, wow, really, dude? You spent that much money on her? Like, are you sure that seems, I don't know, man. That seems like an overkill, dude. You realize how tacky this is, right? Like, what would you want to do, John, in that moment? You'd want to overkill me, right? Guys, (laughs) it's tacky to look at their, to look at her worship and go, really? That seems like a waste on the son of God. Look again at what they say. Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Why this waste? Do you realize how ridiculous this question is? Are you saying that Jesus, the Son of God, in the flesh, is a waste of money? Guys, the disciples in this moment, they don't get it. But here's what they do got. They've got a critical spirit. They're full of, (laughs) they've got hearts that are full of complaints. And their heads, what do they got? They've just got too many thoughts about their own agendas to appreciate what just happened. The real question they should have been asking is, is that all? Is that all the perfume and oil we have to anoint him? Is that all the love that we have to lavish on our Lord and Savior? What else can we give him? Is that the best we've got? But no, they missed the boat. But Mary got it. She got it right. She gave it all to Jesus because Jesus is worth it all. And in case you're wondering why she did this, remember, she just got her brother back from the dead. Then if you've ever lost a loved one, what would you give for just a moment with him again? Guys, Mary got her brother back, and it was Jesus who did that. Jesus brought her brother back to life, and I don't know if it hits you, but it certainly hits me. You need to pray for me right now. Because Jesus gave me new life. And Jesus gave my mom and my dad new life and he's given my wife new life. And I see him working in the lives of my kids. Of course he's worth everything. Of course he's worth everything. I love what Pastor Paul says. (laughs) You know, when you you see the criticism, Pastor Paul and I, we talk about what's that woman saying something? What is she saying in that moment? She's saying, listen, you criticize all you want, guys, but you weren't there. 
you weren't there when he got my, gave my brother back. You weren't there when he gave me my life. You just don't get it. You got no clue about all that he's done for me. He's worth everything. He's worth all of our extravagant worship. <sighs> well, we don't actually know what the woman said in this moment, but we do know. Here's what we do know. We do know what Jesus said. All right? Here's what he said in response to the disciples. Here's how Jesus responded to their criticism of the woman's worship. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus is crystal clear in his rebuke of the disciples' critical spirit. He says, leave her alone. Don't bother her. She's done a good thing. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Guys, disciples, she's worshiping me, and you're too busy thinking about proper ministry. She's pouring out her love, and you're pouring out your complaints and your gossip and your criticism. She's holding nothing back, and you've got nothing good in your heart worth pouring out right now. I need to hang out on Jesus' rebuke here for a second, guys. Here's the thing about Jesus. You shouldn't think thoughts around Jesus that you don't want him to hear. Um, the original Greek in the language here, when it says Jesus aware of this, that points to his supernatural ability, all right, to read the disciples' thoughts. It points to his deity right there. But here's the deal. They weren't thinking anything good about this woman's worship, which makes me think something. It makes me think, what would Jesus say to some of us? All right, if he knew what we were thinking about during worship, as we're singing, as I'm preaching right here, what would Jesus say to us right now if he were here to read your thoughts out loud? It's all too often, guys, that we get stuck thinking the wrong thoughts. Our thought life is out of control. And sometimes we're just like the disciples. We've got no worship to pour out because we're too full of criticism and complaining and self-concerns. What's worse is that sometimes, just like the disciples did, we'll disguise our critical spirit with religion. Remember they said, this money could have been sold and given to the poor. They're disguising their motives here. All right? And we do this too, sometimes in church. We... I'm not pointing any fingers here, but this is what I know about us. We say things like we're concerned with someone's theology when in reality we just don't like the way they worship. We tell people, I've got a prayer request, when in reality we've just got some juicy gossip. Or worse, we question someone else's motives when our only goal is to criticize and wound and knock them down in order to raise ourselves up. If we're being honest... Guys, some of us have got the spiritual gift of criticism, which, by the way, is not a spiritual gift at all, all right? Jesus asked this question, and we ought to examine our own hearts. He asked, why do you trouble the woman? Maybe we ought to ask ourselves, why am I criticizing those people? Why am I complaining about so-and-so and their worship? Why am I so concerned with what they are doing? Here's what I want to encourage you to think about in worship all right? It's not about how the person next to you sounds as they're singing. It's not about how the band sounds. It's not even about what band originally released the recording of our song. All right? What we ought to be thinking about is turning our hearts towards God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Telling our souls to magnify God and to worship Him. To think those lyrics, they're just cue cards. They're to get us thinking about God's goodness and who he is and why he's worthy of worship. 
The cue cards aren't there for us to think about. Who released this song? Guys, church, we too are like the disciples at times, and we too can have a critical spirit. And we need to take the log out of our own eyes, because here's the deal, church. God has called us to worship in spirit and in truth. He hasn't called us to worship with a critical spirit. Amen? Amen. Verse 11, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Um, as we get to verse 11, let me just summarize what happened so far. Um, the woman, she pours the expensive oil, the perfume on Jesus' head. Then the tacky disciples, they criticize her extravagant gesture of worship. And then number three, Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking and he rebukes them. But right after he rebukes them, he does give a little explanation. All right, And I think he does this because some people can actually go too far in worship, right? They can spend so much money on lights and guitars and whatever else, all other accoutrements, that they miss sight of what this is really all about here. All right, some people, maybe even us at times, will neglect the poor and the needy around us under the pretenses of worship. Am I preaching to any parents trying to get their kids ready on Sunday morning? We gotta get to church! Real, ooh, boy, didn't seem very church like right there, mom, right, or dad. Here's the deal. Even us at times, we'll neglect the poor and needy around us under the pretenses of worship. So Jesus makes it clear with verse 11, listen, you always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And here, Jesus is actually quoting from Deuteronomy fifteen eleven. So whenever you see like a rabbi in, in ancient times or whatever, whenever they start a quote, they expect their students to know the end of it, right? Um, so here's the end of that quote. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, for there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Okay, that's how it starts. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. You shouldn't hold back from them either. Jesus is making it clear that we shouldn't neglect the poor and needy. He's affirming that we need to be generous and open-handed with them. But there is a ministry that comes first. And you guys know what that ministry is. It's our devotion to Jesus and Jesus alone. Our conviction to give him everything for everything he's done for us. It's being on fire for God and being willing to do anything for Christ because no thing is too small to give our king. No thing is too small to give our king. Sorry, I rhyme. You just know that's what I do. All right, verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. You see, when Mary poured her perfume on Jesus' body, the text doesn't give us any indication that she has any idea what she's doing in this moment. She doesn't know what she's doing. She just thought she was worshiping the king. Um, Back in those days, they would anoint the king, all right, when he came to rule. Um, I think they even do this in England. I think we're going to see a coronation, and we might see an anointing. I don't know if they're going to televise it. Um, Here's the deal. Um, When a king comes to rule, they would anoint him, and at best, Mary maybe thinks, okay, I'm anointing Jesus, um, whatever, for him to come into his kingdom. I mean, after all, this event takes place right before the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday when Jesus would rise into Jerusalem. Um, And again, quick sidebar here. Uh, Ancient writers, they weren't locked into chronology like we are as Americans, right? We as Americans, we lock everything into chronology. We say, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Um, Matthew actually takes this story, like if it were presented chronologically, it would have been in Matthew 20. But he took this story and he put it right here for a reason. Remember the sandwich that I talked to you guys about? He put this story right here for a reason. But anyway, at best, Mary thinks that she's just anointing Jesus as king. There's no way she knows the full significance of her anointing Jesus. But Jesus, he interprets her act, and he says, Hey, listen, guys, I'm going to die. It's inevitable. I'm going to die. 
My burial's coming up. She's anointed me for burial. And Jesus, you need to understand, in him saying this, he's fully in charge of his destiny. He knows that he's going to die for the sins of the world, and no thing and nobody can stop him because that's what he came into the world to do. Jesus came to die for the loss and to save them by his death on a cross. And this ointment that Mary's poured on Jesus' head, poor running down to his feet, that's just getting him ready for burial. But... There's a really beautiful connection I want to make for you guys here, right? At this point in Matthew 26, we're two chapters away from the end, all right? Um, From Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, But if you go back to the second chapter in Matthew, right after Jesus came to this world, we have another scene of worship. You guys remember the uh, Magi, the three wise men? There's maybe more or less than three, we don't know. We just know they brought three gifts. What were the gifts they brought him? Gold, frankincense, and Myrrh. Guys, do you want to know what this word is in the original Greek? Myron. Yeah, myrrh. Jesus came into this world and he received a gift of myrrh. And upon his departure from this world, he receives another gift of myrrh. It's beautiful, right? Many, Mary has truly done a beautiful thing for Christ. She's given Jesus a bookend to his life here on earth. And what do you think her reward was? Let's get to the last verse. This is my favorite verse in the whole passage. If you're going to memorize anything, memorize this one right here. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I want to take this verse word by word, starting with the word truly. In Greek, this is amen, amen. And whenever Jesus starts off a phrase like this, you know he's about to lay down some truth. For truly, the statement that follows truly, truly is a proclamation. I do declare. is what Jesus is saying here. Truly I say to you. Here comes the proclamation, but notice it's addressed to you. To you. Guys, these words... Dear Christian, they were meant for you. You were meant to hear these next words. They were directed at you by your Lord, and they've made the long journey across an ocean. And through two millennia of history, just so that you could hear this, that wherever this gospel is proclaimed, guys, think about what is the gospel. The last time maybe you talked about the gospel. Did you mention this woman? Did you talk about Mary's devotion? Did you share her unrestrained extravagance as the proper response to Jesus' lordship? That he's worth our entire life savings? That he's worth our futures? He's worth everything we can give him. Guys, her act of extravagant worship, it was destined to accompany the gospel truth throughout all eternity. And that's why all four gospel writers, they put it in there. But what's so important about it? What's so significant about it? I'll get there in a second, but you need to notice that Jesus is honoring her worship. It was meant to go far and wide. Everyone's supposed to know the whole world. What she's done for Jesus is meant to be talked about. That's why we're talking about it today. It's meant to be thought about. It's what you need to be thinking about right now. He doesn't want you to critique her worship like the disciples. He wants you to see that what she has done is huge. It's memorable. (laughs) But the stories on either side of this narrative, they're filled with little, forgettable men. Religious leaders who were so preoccupied with getting rid of the Jesus nuisance that they conspired and plotted 
and connived behind closed doors to get rid of him. And the other guy on the side of the sandwich, Judas, well, he died wishing that people would forget about him and what he did for Jesus. But Mary, in the middle of the sandwich, the way she worshipped was noteworthy. It's more than commendable. It's memorable. The way she worshipped was extravagant. It's interesting to me, guys. They say that smell is the sense most closely related to memory, right? Here's what I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, I love what the kids say. Bet. Hey, bet the disciples never forgot about how it smelled that night in that small little dining room where Mary poured out her life savings on Jesus. You know what's really interesting? Go to John's gospel, John 11. We've got a brother at a, um, a sister church of ours, um, Ralph. You guys know him. Um, he's, uh, he's preaching John 11 today right now. And uh, do you guys remember what Jesus said, uh, or what they said to Jesus right before he raised Lazarus from the grave? Um, Jesus, he's been in there four days. Don't open the tomb. Why? Because it stinketh. That's the King James. It's going to stink, right? Ha, well, who would have thought that instead of the rank odor of decaying flesh, they would have been smelling perfume later that night, rather than the odor of Lazarus's corpse. Dear child of God, you got to recognize this is what Jesus does. This right here is what Jesus does. We're dead in our sin and trespasses, but God makes us alive. We stink of death and corruption, yet God... He breathes new life into our nostrils and lungs and our very souls. He takes the stinky funeral clothes right off our backs and he gives us his aromatic robes of righteousness. He takes our sinful lives, our sins, and he buries them far, far away. And God gives us instead the sweet, sweet fragrance of Christ. This is just what Jesus does. The way we respond, that's the only thing that matters now. So, so what? What does this text mean for us? What does the story matter at all? Well, if I'm honest, I think this story touches on the meaning of life. The meaning of your life. Because here's the deal. Your meaning in life comes from making your life a means to an end. Your meaning in life comes from making your life a means to an end. I need you to think about this. Like the value of any tool, right, is how well it accomplishes the end for which it was made. Does the hammer hit the nail, right? If it does, it is a worthwhile hammer. Does it do what it was meant to do? After all, that's what meaning means. Does it do what it was meant to do? And if you've ever wondered about the meaning of life, you need to think about your life as a means to an end. That means you need to think about why you were made. You need to consider to what end was my life meant to accomplish. If my life is a means to an end, what's the end? Another way of saying it is what are you made for? Because here's the deal. When your life fully aligns with what you were made to do, when you make your life a means to that end, that's when you'll find meaning, church. That's when you'll find significance. That's when you'll find purpose in your life. So what were you made to do? For centuries, the church has put this question in this way. 
They've asked, what is the chief end of man? For what end were we made? To answer that question, the Bible teaches us clearly that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Your main purpose in life, the end for which you were made, is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. You were made to worship. So what Mary does in this passage, by worshiping extravagantly, she's doing what she was meant to do. And worshiping God, that is offering him everything, offering him generously of our lives because he alone is worthy, that's what you were meant to do. That's where you'll find meaning in life, giving him all that you have and all that you do and all that you are. That's the extravagant end for which you were made. It's what you were meant to do. You weren't meant to waste your life criticizing and complaining and being self-concerned. You were made to concern yourself with God above and his glory. The disciples, they asked why this waste. They didn't realize that they were the ones wasting their time complaining, criticizing, comparing Mary's offering. They had the son of God right in front of them. And they missed the chance to give him something meaningful. Um, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, Vanity of all vanities, life under the sun is meaningless. But I tell you, church, life lived unto the sun. The S-O-N Son of God, that is where you will find meaning. You won't find meaning in criticizing others, in toiling to accomplish your own ends, in working for whatever agenda you feel like you've got to do. You're going to end up betraying Christ and have nothing to show for yourselves but remorse and regret. But I believe this with all my heart. I think the most commendable, memorable, purposeful, honorable, significant thing you can do with your life is to commit it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give him everything extravagantly. Don't hold back. Imagine I had a pitcher of water here and I had two cups and I asked you to pour me a cup. Hey, I want you to pour me a cup critically or intentionally okay, I think I poured you a cup. Is that the kind of cup you want? Or how about this? I want you to pour me a cup of water extravagantly. As long as it's not over my carpet, right? (laughs) Mm. That's what I want. I want life overflowing. Life that runs over the brim. That's the kind of offering you were meant to give Jesus. If I have one line for my talk today, it's this. Jesus is worth it. There's my point. He's worth it. Whatever it is for you, Jesus is worth it, guys. Would you pray with me now? Oh, God, you were worth it. You're worth it all. You're worth our humble obedience. You're worth our submission. You're worth all the honor and praise we can give you. You're worth every breath in our lungs and every thought in our heads. We weren't meant to waste our lives complaining and criticizing. God, help us, help us to have hearts like Mary. Hearts that aren't full of duplicity like Judas, but full of purity like Mary. Help us to embrace uncalculated generosity rather than the calculated politics of religious men behind the scenes. 
The disciples, they were too concerned with the external measures of their ministry rather than the eternal reality that was right in front of them. God, help us to be like Mary who gave sacrificially and loved wholeheartedly. Help us to not be like Cain who was poisoned by his brother's offering and didn't like what he saw. Help us to be wholehearted worshipers of you. Guys, um, 12 ounces of perfume. It wouldn't have solved the problem of poverty, but 12 ounces of Jesus, 12 pints of Jesus's blood solved all of our sin, solved that problem for good. And if you don't know the love of Christ, if you have not had the blood of Christ to cover over all your sins, I want to embrace or invite you right now to embrace that, that gospel truth that God has paid for all of your sins and he's the only one to give you new life. He's the only one that can give you meaning. He's the only one that can give you purpose. He is the end for which you were made. Find meaning in giving your life to him. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Guys, I want to end on this. As Porter, William Sidney Porter, as he ended his story on the gift of the Magi, this is what he said. He said, of all who give and received gifts, such as they, they who give extravagantly, they who give the most meaningful thing they can to the people who mean the most to them, they are the wisest. Everyone everywhere who does this is the wisest. They are the magi. Church, don't hold back. Church, worship extravagantly. Don't be filled with complaints or criticisms or comparisons. Let your heart be filled with the love of Jesus Christ that compels you to love him back. Because he saw you when you were at your worst. He saw you when you were at your lowest. And he loves you. We're going to have an extended time of worship. Um, I want to give you like 30 seconds though, just to contemplate God's goodness. Can you guys go ahead and turn off the lights here for a second, guys? I just want you to sit in this for a second. God, how good you are. Help us to pour out our praise to you and you alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take 30 seconds and we'll get going with our worship. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.